Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's my privilege to bring us God's word today, which comes from Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we don't just want to hear your word today, we want to understand it. And that means we need your help and the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us to the truth, to open up our eyes, our minds, and our hearts, to receive it and to apply it. We pray for this guiding help today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This verse sounds an awful lot like Jesus is saying, if we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us. And this principle is stated elsewhere in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Unforgiveness has some kind of effect. And the first thing we're going to look at today is the effect of unforgiveness. Some interpret this to mean that if we don't forgive others, that must mean that we haven't personally experienced the grace and forgiveness of God. Therefore, we must not be true believers. Now, that may be true, but I don't think that's the most well-rounded explanation of this verse. I think it's very possible that a true believer may struggle with forgiving others their entire lives and actually hold onto that bitterness or grudge to their death in the same way that all believers are going to struggle with particular sins until their death. But that doesn't mean they were never believers to begin with. Nor do I think Jesus is saying that in order to become a true Christian, you have to first forgive everyone who has ever sinned against you. Then and only then will God forgive you. That can't be right, because that means we are saved by works and not by grace, and that is not the gospel. Notice in this passage, Jesus refers to God as Father. Calling God our Father is an exclusive privilege reserved only for believers who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so whatever it means that God will not forgive their sins, this has nothing to do with one's eternal status as a child of God. To sum that up, Jesus is talking about true believers who are having a hard time forgiving others and the effect that that unforgiveness is having on them. According to this passage, then, does this mean that God is placing some kind of temporary embargo on his forgiveness until we finally forgive others? Does this mean that if we haven't forgiven someone for something they've done five years ago, that all of the repentance during that time, God chooses not to forgive? Do we have this five-year backlog of unforgiven sins that we are unaware of? Imagine you pay your bills or your mortgage through the mail, and that five years later, you get a box full of mail stamped, return to sender, you discover that your credit score has sunk to the double digits and the debt collectors are after you? Is that what happens when we ask God for forgiveness, 
when we haven't forgiven others, does God just stamp return to sender when we repent and ask for forgiveness? Here's another question. How do we reconcile this verse with other verses in the Bible like 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. We're so used to hearing that God will forgive us whenever we repent and whatever we repent of because he loves us as our heavenly father, right? But think about this. What if forgiving you isn't the only way your heavenly father loves you? We know God in his perfect wisdom may withhold good things for some time in order to teach us good things for a longer time. And what if one of those good things is forgiveness? What if God lovingly withholds forgiveness to teach you more about forgiveness? Now, with that being said, it's so important that we differentiate us humans from God When we withhold forgiveness from others, that's not the same as what this passage is saying when God, that God withholds forgiveness from us. When we withhold forgiveness from others, it's because we're bitter or resentful. In other words, our unforgiveness is always sinful. However, when God withholds forgiveness from us, it's not because he's bitter or resentful. God can't sin. And God can't and won't ever be bitter at us because on the cross, Jesus took all of that punishment, wrath, and condemnation. Yet God can somehow be unforgiving towards us while still remaining loving towards us. God can limit the good things he gives us without limiting his love for us. In this case, we could say God is lovingly unforgiving. What does that mean? What does this loving unforgiveness look like? And this is where I don't don't want to be too dogmatic or super specific because the Bible isn't so specific as as to exactly what this might look like. His ways are truly higher than ours. However, I I think the New Testament scholar, F.F. Bruce, is helpful in this regard. He says this about this verse. The meaning is unambiguous, and it is unwise to try to avoid its uncomfortable challenge. What he's saying is that this verse means what it says, and there's no other way around it. He does also establish this very important point. He says, Forgiveness is neither given nor received on legal ground. It is always a matter of grace. What he's saying here is that forgiving others isn't how how we earn God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is always by God's grace alone. So this isn't about earning God's forgiveness, but it is about enjoying God's forgiveness. And this is what F.F. Bruce is saying here. But if some of those to whom this admonition was addressed, and it is addressed to all Christians at all times, should persist in an unforgiving attitude towards others, could they even so enjoy the assurance of God's forgiveness? Let me illustrate it this way. 
the late pastor Dennis James Kennedy, he describes bitterness and unforgiveness this way. He says, it's like we're keeping that person a prisoner in the dungeon of our soul. And I want to pause here and ask, are you keeping any prisoners? Are there mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, co-workers, bosses, former church members, current church members, coaches locked up in the dungeon of your soul? Allow me to expand on that illustration. Imagine with one hand, you're, you're knocking on God's door, asking for forgiveness for your own sins. Yet with your other hand, you're pushing so hard against that dungeon door to make sure that it stays shut. Now God being faithful and loving through Jesus Christ, he will open that door. Absolutely. He will open that door and he will forgive. You will be pardoned for those personal sins. However, because your other hand is preoccupied, you can only experience one handful of that assurance and that peace. I believe that is what F.F. Bruce is getting at here. And in order to enjoy that assurance fully, you have to free up your other hand. Unforgiveness is a sin. All sin disrupts our fellowship with God and interrupts our spiritual sensitivity. And so on one hand, by not forgiving others, you're, you're limiting your capacity to enjoy God's forgiveness and the assurance and peace that comes with that. And on the other hand, because God wants to teach us, he may additionally limit or delay that assurance and enjoyment of forgiveness. Does this mean that if we haven't forgiven others, that our enjoyment of God's presence and blessing in other areas of our lives will also be limited? I don't think so. I don't think God is going to, to cease to bless and care for you in other areas of your life. We don't want to apply so broadly what is specifically mentioned in this verse. I believe that when it comes specifically to your prayer life, in those moments when you repent of your sins, that if you haven't forgiven others, that's when you may not experience that full assurance and peace of God's forgiveness. Why would God do this? This is why. To alarm our consciences to the inconsistency and hypocrisy of expecting him to forgive us while we are unwilling to forgive others. There is something offbeat when we confidently appeal to the grace of God for the forgiveness of our personal sins, but we staunchly deny that grace to others. When we ask for forgiveness for our personal sin, isn't that when we are the most orthodox theologians of the gospel of grace? Yet when it comes to forgiving others, somehow we become opponents and deniers of that very same grace. And this is the main reason why Jesus is making such a big deal out of forgiveness because forgiveness is at the heartbeat of the gospel. 
Why did God send his only begotten son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, to earth to take on frailty and the weakness of human flesh, to be tempted by the devil, to be betrayed, accused, mocked, flogged beyond recognition, nailed to a cross, and to endure the full force of God's wrath. All for what? Forgiveness. It's so that those who were once enemies of God because of their sin, and that's everyone, because we are all born into sin, that those people might be forgiven and no longer be enemies, but reconcile with God and become sons and daughters of God. And this is free of charge. This is by God's grace through faith in Jesus who was slain for our sin and he rose from the dead. Forgiveness, brothers and sisters, is at the heartbeat of the gospel. Which means when we ask God for forgiveness while willfully withholding forgiveness from others, that's a sign of spiritual arrhythmia. There is something irregular about our understanding of the gospel. And not only does unforgiveness affect our assurance and enjoyment of God's forgiveness towards us, it impacts other areas of our lives as well. The movie Erin Brockovich is based on a true story back in 1996 She helped a group of residents in Hinckley, California, about two hours north of here, win a massive lawsuit against a utility company who was found liable for for dumping a toxic chemical into a pond decades ago. This was back in the 50s and 60s. And because the pond was unlined, that toxic chemical seeped into the town's groundwater. And the company hid the crisis, and they misled the community about the effects of that chemical and its connection to the health problem of the people of that town. Satan wants to hide and mislead us to the effects of unforgiveness, that the the effects that unforgiveness has on our spiritual lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan wants to outwit us as believers into not forgiving others to the detriment of our own spiritual vitality, our fellowship with God, the unity of the church, and our gospel witness. Let me ask this question. How long have you buried bitterness, resentment inside of your own heart? Has it been for decades? Maybe since the 90s or the early 2000s, maybe more recently in this past year or this past week. And it's important that we know that our hearts are are highly porous, And that bitterness that we have buried in there is going to seep into other areas of our lives. On top of all of that, unforgiveness, it's also exhausting. Imagine pushing against a door with all of your might for 30 minutes straight. Isn't that exhausting? 
Imagine doing that for a full day, a full year, five years. If you let go of that dungeon door, I think you'll find a lot of rest. Dennis James Kennedy, he says this, descend the staircase in your heart, open the prison door, the chains, and let him out of the dungeon of your soul. Practically, how do we move towards forgiveness? This is how we move towards forgiveness. And we're going to answer that by answering a couple questions. And the first is this. Why is forgiveness so hard? And the answer is quite simple. It's because you've been really hurt. The more hurt, the harder it is to forgive. And I know that sounds obvious, but I wanted to make that point so that it doesn't sound like forgiveness should be so easy or so effortless just because we're Christians. Forgiveness is hard for the most mature believer and the new believer. I read a book recently called Creaking Stairs by Mez McConnell. And as a kid, McConnell, he was tormented by his stepmother. In his book, he writes about how she starved him, she beat him, she verbally abused him. She would throw his food on the ground and force him to eat it off of the floor without utensils, not even with his hands, but only with his mouth. She would then smash his face into the floor and smear it into the food. There was one time when he came home early from school because he had terrible stomach pain. His stepmother was at home drinking with her friends. She asked why he's home early. He explains that he has awful stomach pain, to which she says, you look all right to me. She then punches him in the head, knocks him to the ground, and starts stomping on his stomach with her boots. He wakes up later in the hospital after having his appendix removed. He later learned that his stepmother was forced to call the ambulance because he had blacked out and he wasn't waking up. And she didn't even wait for the ambulance to arrive. She had gone to the bar with her friends. On another occasion, he recalls hearing her yelling in the house, followed by the sounds of thuds down the staircase. He peeks out of his room down the staircase and he sees his disabled sister being dragged down the steps by her hair. And he says that it's the whimpering that he can never forget, like an injured animal by the side of the road. And what was the reason for all of that? It's because his sister had left an unclean spoon in the sink. Later in life, Mez was introduced to Jesus and he became a believer. Praise God for that. And he remembers when he first learned about heaven and hell. And the title of one of his chapters captures his sentiment after hearing about hell for the first time. The title is this, The Glorious, Wonderful Reality of Hell. He said, imagine that, how glorious that would be a place after death for all the rats who terrorized me, abused me and my sister. She should be there forever. That was his response. 
He said that he was so happy when he first learned about hell that he couldn't contain himself. And he began to mention hell in all of his prayers. And he would sign off his time of prayer by asking God to keep the fire extra hot for his stepmother. And he said that the doctrine of hell gave him a a real sense of peace, that God was going to burn them all for eternity. He says, hell was real, brilliant. I absolutely loved it. He then later learned about heaven. And the following chapter title captures his initial sentiment, the terrible reality of heaven. He says this, There is a verse in a famous hymn that says, The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. For many years, I refused to sing that verse. I refused to believe that God would do that to me, that there was still an opportunity for my abuser to go to heaven. And what about those verses, like the one we read today, about forgiving others? He said that those verses were sickening to him. When McConnell found out online many years later that his stepmother had passed away, he said he was conflicted. And this is when he was a Christian. He said he was hopeful that she would be in hell. But at the same time, he felt guilty because he knew he should be more merciful towards her. And he he wondered if before she died, she called out to Christ for mercy in her final moments. And he even said that he had a brief moment of panic that he might see her in heaven one day. You may never say this out loud, but are there people that you're hopeful will be in hell? Would it be your worst nightmare if you saw certain people in heaven. Long after you forgive someone, although you may no longer be dealing with bitterness, you're still dealing with a lot of brokenness, maybe in the form of PTSD, panic attacks, or wounds, emotional or physical. I wish I could say that forgiving them is going to fix all of that and get rid of all of that, But their sin against you, although forgiven by you, will still have lasting consequences against you in this lifetime. And I think for that reason, forgiveness can be so hard. How then can we get to a place of forgiveness? How did Mez McConnell get to a place of forgiveness? He says that there is no way I would ever accept any of this until I had a complete change of heart. The second practical question, how can we have a change of heart to forgive? And there are four things we need to know. And the first is our sin. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. It is any way that we are out of step of the holy law of God and thought, word, and deed. And we are always out of step because we are all born into sin. We are born breaking God's law. We cannot keep it. And the more we break it, the more we are storing up God's wrath upon us. Zachary or Sinus in his larger catechism, he he teaches us this. Why does sin deserve eternal punishment? Because God's justice demands that punishment be equivalent to the wrong. 
Every sin involves infinite wrong because it is an offense against God who is infinite good. Therefore, it deserves infinite punishment. It's not just about having a strong doctrine of sin, but a real awareness of our personal sin. Why is this so important? In Luke chapter 7, Jesus says that he who is forgiven little loves little. What does that mean? Those who believe and think that they have been forgiven a little, they love Jesus a little. Those who know that they have been given, forgiven so much because they're more aware of their own personal sin, they love Jesus a lot. What else do we need to have a change of heart? We need to also understand God's grace. Forgiveness is free because of God's grace. But that doesn't mean it wasn't costly. Colossians chapter 2 says that all of our sin and our record of debt was canceled because Jesus paid the price. That record of debt was nailed to the cross. Jesus was nailed to the cross. That somehow Jesus in a finite period of time satisfied the infinite wrath of God for the totality of our sins so that whenever we do repent, God will forgive. And the gospel freely offers forgiveness and salvation for all those who would repent and receive that through faith in Jesus Christ. McConnell says this, I am so glad God is not like me. I am so glad that he did not hold a grudge against me for my sins against him. And I think that's the key. The key to forgiving like our father is realizing that our father is nothing like us. Imagine if God, like us, held grudges for a long period of time without us even knowing about it. Imagine if God is like us. We, we say we forgive, but we don't really mean it. Thank God that God is not like us. Forgiveness, according to God's grace, means this. And it means that our forgiveness towards others is going to look like this. Forgiveness means we, can't, we cancel their debt and we no longer hold it against them. It also means that forgiveness doesn't mean we've, we pretend we haven't been hurt. It means that that hurt no longer takes the form of hate. The third thing we need to know to have a change of heart is God's vengeance. Forgiveness is hard because even if you forgive them, you still have to suffer the consequences of their sin against you. That doesn't go away. Yes, we ought to pursue justice to the fullest sense in this lifetime, but there are certain things that can't be undone with the limitations of human justice. Because of that, forgiving them can sometimes feel like injustice. And our instinct is to wait until we feel like there is full justice. But that's not what the Bible is calling us to do. We are to forgive even in the absence of perfect justice. And that's so hard. But it is possible if we understand God's justice and his vengeance. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God will hold everyone accountable. 
God knows everything and nobody will get away with anything. No one can stand before a holy God and deny what they have done and God will repay everyone accordingly and that vengeance belongs to God, not to us. Because of our innate desire for justice, knowing God's vengeance and justice will be perfect and thorough, we don't have to fret over that anymore. And that helps us move towards forgiveness. I do want to note that there are numerous factors that determine what things will look like after we forgive. Does that mean things are going to look exactly the way they were before? Not always. And that may not even be wise based on the kind of sin. But reconciliation at the minimum means that there is true peace between the two parties, between you and them. There's true peace. However, the proximity between those two people will depend, I believe, on the circumstances of that sin and other factors. In other words, you may not be close to them anymore, but you're not cold towards them anymore. The fourth thing we need to know in order to move towards forgiveness and have a change of heart is God's restoration. You can't put all the water back into a bucket after it's been spilled on the ground. No matter how hard you try to collect all that water and to sponge it all up as much as you can, you're going to fall short of its original content. When someone sins against you, that sin can really take a toll on you emotionally, spiritually, physically. That sin can really break you emotionally, spiritually, physically. It's as if they knocked over your bucket and a lot of water spilled out. And even if they truly repent, we may not find ourselves wanting to forgive. Why? Because even after their repentance, your bucket still doesn't look or feel as full as it was before. You're not able to get all the water back in the way it was, the level that it was at before they sinned against you. And sadly, it's true. There are sins and there are consequences that can't be fully undone. And it's hard not to be bitter about that. This is why knowing the restoration of God is so important. Brothers and sisters, God can put all the water back into the bucket. Joel chapter 2, 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. When swarming locusts pass through a land, they devastate the land and strip it down to nothing. It's hard to imagine that land would ever be the same again. And just like the locusts, the Assyrians devastated the Israelites. That's the context here. And it was hard to imagine that they would ever be the same again. Because of the evil done to us, it can feel like we were stripped and robbed of years of life, of vitality, of hope, of happiness. It was actually God who permitted the, Isra- the Assyrians to strike the Israelites for the purpose of discipline. And this also means that 
Even the evil that has happened to you, that is not outside the realm of God's good and wise sovereignty. Without being the author of evil, God permits evil at times for his divine purposes, as we see with the Israelites and even with us. But here God promises that he will one day restore everything that was lost and stripped of them. When will that restoration be? That'll be when Christ our Savior returns. We as believers know that we have a home and hope beyond this world, and there everything will be made right, and there everything will be restored. I pray that the knowledge of this gospel restoration to come, along with the other things that we have talked about this morning, helps us move towards forgiveness and gives us a change of heart. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that there would be a softening of our hearts and also a healing of our hearts. Many of us have been the recipients of much sin and evil and abuse and harm. God, I pray that you would minister to those brothers and sisters. Bring them greater healing. Father God, I pray that their hope would be in the gospel and the restoration that is to come and your justice and and vengeance and grace. All of that combined, Father God, I pray, would move us and give us a change of heart that we may forgive others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.